You know, as Brother Michael mentioned in his prayers, you know, most of us, our minds have been on this past couple of weeks uh, about the tornado victims and those who have been affected about that, that that happened here December 10th and 11th. And, uh, you know, just kind of keeping track with the things that are in the news, just, there's still so much that we just don't know about. Uh, there's things that we're still processing. Of course, you know, Mayfield and Bowling Green seem to have been hit the hardest and our, our focus has been on them. You know, and it's different when it's, you know, in our own backyards. You know, it makes it more personal uh, for us uh, that, that this has happened to the, the men and women within uh, Kentucky. There was, uh, you, you probably remember this well, but uh, less than two years ago in Cookville, Tennessee, and Nashville, Tennessee, went through pretty much the same thing again in March of 2020. And I remember uh, a few days after this had happened uh, that a youth minister in Cookville by the name of uh, Matt, um, Matt Collins, uh, he uh, had posted, uh, well, his family went through a lot of tragedy uh, during the, those couple of days. And maybe you're familiar with this as well, but uh, he had posted this lengthy uh, article on, on his Facebook page uh, after that had happened in Throughout the, the weeks and the months, over 50,000 people had shared uh, this uh, article that he wrote. There was over 12,000 people had commented uh, to express their, their sorrow for everything that happened to them. And I want to read to you a portion of his, his article for you to, this morning. Again, you may have read this, but this is the tragedy that affected him and his family in that tornado uh, less than two years ago. He wrote, Ever since she was born... Hattie has loved being held. In four and a half years, she has slept with Macy and I nearly every single night close. She wants to feel you. Early on Tuesday morning, March 3rd, Hattie had wound up in our bed once again. She was asleep between Macy and I when Macy's phone went off, alerting us of a tornado warning in Putnam County. She immediately woke me up where I quickly turned on the TV. Dan Thomas from Channel 4 was on, and his first words I heard alerted those around Upperman High School to take cover. We immediately grabbed Hattie out of the bed and began running as fast as possible toward Laney's room to grab her out of her crib. Macy grabbed Laney, and I had Hattie, and we hit the floor. The sound around us was like unanything we've ever heard before, deafening silence. As soon as we hit the ground with the girls, the tornado hit. Everything was collapsing and going up around us. I was yelling as loud as I could. I don't remember what I said or even if what I said were words at all, but my yells were pleads for my girls to hang on. The four of us were relocated by the storm to somewhere around our front porch, we think. We were in the dirt, in the crawl space, but together. The following are memories I do not have. Macy and I both blacked out around this time and have no memory until we woke up across the street at a house that was still standing. The rest of the story is filled with God's people, many at college side who came to our aid. Corey and Lauren were our neighbors. Their house was lost, or excuse me, their house was also lost in the storm, but they were able to escape. Soon after the storm passed, Corey could hear my screams. We had a light and was able to locate the four of us. Macy was holding Laney. I was holding Hattie. We had never let go. Corey took the girls from our arms because he could see all four of us were injured. More neighbors, Luke and Amy, had been able to escape and get to Luke's truck. Luke and Amy had Jill and her family in the truck with them. Corey handed Hattie to Jill and Lainey to Amy. My girls never touched the ground. Luke drove, hoping to make it to the McBroom Chapel Church building, but couldn't. 
He was able to make it to Amy's house, uh, where some of the trucks were unloaded. Amy took care of Lainey, getting her out of wet clothes and keeping her warm. When an ambulance was able to locate the group, Jill and Lainey uh, were checked into the hospital. Luke was holding Hattie. She had already passed. Luke held her, though. Hattie loves to be held. My girls never touched the ground. Luke turned her over to the professionals when they arrived on the scene to go help more people. There is no doubt the Hensley neighborhood saved each other that night. And then he ends his, uh, his thoughts with saying, We do not believe the Lord took our girl from us. We believe he is holding our girls for us. And Hattie loves to be held. Why did God allow that happen to that Christian family? You know, when, when tragedy strikes, we ask ourselves so many times in events like these, why does God allow suffering? Why does he allow sorrow? Why does he allow heartache and death, even among his own children? You know, some have turned their backs on God because of it. Some to re- refuse to believe that God exists in this world because of it. They say that if God is so powerful, couldn't he have prevented my pain? Or if God is so loving, why did he not spare me the heartache? The simple answer that we can answer this morning is that God is good and God is good all times. The psalmist said in Psalm 145 verse 9, The Lord is good to all and his mercies are over all his works. And when we read throughout scripture about suffering, you know, there are some passages that really uh, help us narrow in on what uh, the purpose of suffering is in this life. First Peter chapter 1 verses 6 through 9, notice Peter says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Suffering helps forge our faith, Peter says. And listen to what James says, because James is even more peculiar to us, maybe when we're reading it for the first time. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, James says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You might be reading that for the first time and you're saying that I need to have joy in my trials and sufferings in this life. Again, we are gonna ask ourselves this morning, why does God allow suffering? And so I want us to notice some points as we look throughout the scriptures as to why a God why a loving God, an all-powerful God, allows suffering in this life. And the first point we want to make is that suffering makes us more dependent on God. You know, we, we, we tend to want to be self-sufficient in this life, right? We, we're, we grow up in this generation of, I've, you know, I got this. I can do all things. And when we think of suffering in the Bible, hopefully your minds go to Job. Nathaniel just wrote us a passage out of the book of Job. You know, here is a man, the Bible tells us, is blameless and upright, God-fearing. He turned away from evil. Uh, the Bible tells us he was the greatest man in all of the East because he, he was uh, very financially well-off. Um, 
he had you know, many servants and livestock and ten children. And we remember in those first couple of chapters how Satan came and, and challenged God. Right? And God says, have you considered my servant Job? And of course, Satan says, you know, does he fear God for nothing? Uh, but no, you, you've blessed him, right? You, you've built this hedge around him. You've protected him. You've blessed him in this life. Of course he loves you. Of course he follows you. But we know from those two chapters uh, that God allows Satan to uh, interact with in Job in a way that he can't do today. But in chapters 1, uh, he takes away Job's servants. And he takes away Job's livestock. And we know that his ten children die uh, in that chapter. And then in chapter 2... Uh, Satan takes away Job's health, right? Skin for skin. And so Job is in a miserable state. And so often the world wants us to react sort of how Mrs. Job is reacting in in that. You remember what she said in chapter 2 of verse 9? She said to Job, why do you still hold fast to your integrity? Right? Curse God and die, she said. You know, God's not with you, Job. He's given up on you. But we know that it was not the attitude of Job. Job was dependent upon God. As read for us this morning in chapter 1, verse 21, he said, I came into this world naked and I'm going to return uh, that way as well. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In chapter 13, verse 15, Job says, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Notice in Job chapter 42, this is the last chapter of the book. Notice Uh, Job's uh, final thoughts, his final confession in verses 1 through 6, the conclusion to his interactions that he has been having with Job. Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear now and I will speak. I will ask you, and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I retract, and I repent in dust and ashes. Job comes to the conclusion that I need you, God. I depend on you. And sometimes we think of Job as, you know, poor Job. You know, why would God allow this suffering to happen to him? But maybe we should reverse that and think, what a great honor that God allowed this to happen to Job. See, Job was God's answer towards Satan's challenges. God said, of all people on the earth, I choose you, Job. I choose you to to, uh, be my trophy, to to stand up towards uh, these challenges of Satan. And if that is what, you know, that's what Satan thinks of us here this morning. That just, I'll give you just a little suffering and you're going to fold. And though Job had some questions, you know, throughout the book of Job, you know, the book of Job is more extensive than what we just talked about here in these couple of minutes. But he had some questions. He fully didn't understand what was going on in the circumstances. But the point is, is that he never gave up. He depended on God the whole time. You know, and you and I will probably never suffer as Job did. But will we stay dependent upon God when even the littlest of suffering comes our way? Again, Job chapter 1, verse 20, verse 1, verse 22, through all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Well, what other reasons? Why does God allow suffering? Secondly, we want to see that suffering teaches us how to pray. You know, it really, it enhances our ability to pray. It's an 
instinctive human response to severe hardship. Right? Uh, that's usually our first response when someone says, you know, I'm re- dealing with something or I've been in an auto accident or I've just got this diagnosis from, from the doctors. What's our first response normally? I'll pray for you. Right? That, that's what we want to do. When, when towns go through uh, destructive uh, natural disasters, you know, they'll hold uh, town vigils. They'll come together and pray for the town. That's our natural instinct to uh, those types of uh, suffering. But the Bible teaches that effective prayer, you know, is a learned exercise. In Luke chapter 11, the, the disciples were listening to Jesus pray. Right? Jesus was praying, and after he got done praying, you remember what they asked him? They said, Lord, teach us how to pray. You know, that's sort of surprising, isn't it? Because uh, they are Jewish men. They, they've been around prayer their whole lives. They, they, they probably heard it from their parents. They've seen it in the synagogue. Uh, and they're asking, Lord, you need, we're asking you to take us back to school. Teach us how to pray. Teach us how to do it effectively. You know, and there's no prayer as vivid as the prayer Jesus made when Calvary was looming. Look with me in Luke chapter 22. When we get to Luke chapter 22, uh, Jesus and his disciples, they come to the Garden of Gethsemane. Of course, they're there. He, he, he tells most of his apostles to stay here, but he goes on a little bit further with, with Peter and James and John. And, and Jesus then tells that group to just you know, stay here and keep watch. And I'm going to go over here and pray. And we know the Bible tells us that at that point, Jesus started becoming distressed. He started to become grieved. He said, my soul is deeply grieved. And as he prays to God, he prays, Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will. But as you will. Well, notice in Luke chapter 22, verse 44, Luke records, And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Jesus, he was plumbing the depths of prayer at that moment. He was praying very fervently, and that's what suffering does for us. You know, even Dr. Luke, he gives us this pretty descriptive um, uh, description of what's going on. You know, this is a, a pretty rare uh, thing, but it's known to happen. Uh, the technical term is hematrodidrosis. And under, you know, great emotional distress, tiny capillaries in our sweat glands can rupture and mix blood with precipitation. And that's what appears to be going on here. Again, his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. He was in such agony and distress, knowing that the cross was imminent. And again, uh, when we suffer, it's teaching us to pray, teaching us to pray more fervently than maybe we ever had before. Under the burden of suffering, we learn to pray like we have never prayed before. Let's, Let's notice a third point here, that suffering brings out our best. You remember Fred Rogers, uh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood? He famously once said, uh, when I was a boy and I would see scary things in the news, my mother would say to me, look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping. Now, we know that there are a lot of good deeds, a lot of good works that, that exist because suffering exists. You know, we see the best of humanity in times of suffering. We see volunteer efforts. We see people donating time and funds. You know, and many times uh, because of these um, organizations, you know, that that they say, hey, we can't take any more volunteers or we don't need any more funds. We have been overwhelmed. You know, and I even see this here, right? Uh, Christians here in Columbia supporting their friends who are in distress 
preparing meals for those uh, who may be suffering, sitting with someone who's distressed, uh, helping financially when trials exist. Suffering brings out the best in us. It's not that we are doing these things uh, looking to have a favor returned, but someday, you know, you and I may be in those same positions. You know, someday a natural disaster might hit this town, right? Or, or maybe a fire. And there's no doubt in my mind that the Lord's church will be at work. I preached a sermon uh, uh, this summer about this man named Epaphroditus. Maybe you, you remember this, but in Philippians chapter 2, uh, Paul is writing about these great examples within Scripture. And he says, you know, you need to be like Jesus. And then he talks about himself a little bit. And then he talks about Timothy. And then he brings up this man, Epaphroditus. We don't know much about him except for what he writes to us in, in Philippians chapter 2. But Paul is in prison at this time. Uh, he's in Roman imprisonment, and he's writing to the church of the, of the Philippians. And the Philippians, who is a church that very much supported Paul more than probably any other church in Scripture, they send this man, Epaphroditus, to Rome to help support Paul. Right? What he did, we don't know. Maybe he, uh, he cooked his food, maybe he did his laundry, maybe he ran his errands, but he was there to support Paul during this time of suffering while being in prison. And while, uh, while there, while in Philippi, or excuse me, while in Rome, Epaphroditus, the Bible tells us, became sick. Sick to even to the point of death. And word even got back to the church in Philippi, and they began to worry about uh, this great man that they had sent to help with the work. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 29 and 30, Paul instructs the church in Philippi. He says, Receive him then in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. We see here an example in Scripture of this man, Epaphroditus, and this church in Philippi. When, when, suffering, when they saw suffering in the world, uh, in, in Paul, and his imprisonment, that brought out the best in them. That brought out the best in Epaphroditus, that he was willing to risk his life to serve the Lord, even at the point of death. Also, let's notice this morning that suffering sows the seeds of compassion. It does. It, it, excuse me, it prepares us to be compassionate to others. You know, maybe you've heard of these, these old proverbs. But one says, do not judge a man until you've walked a mile in his shoes. Or what about this one? One cannot comfort effectively until he has lain in the bed of suffering. You know, that, that might be a little bit of an overstatement, but it contains a grain of truth. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, the Bible tells us that Jesus, being our great high priest who uh, had been tempted just like you and I, uh, that he has suffered in his life, he is qualified uh, to be uh, our great high priest. He, he is qualified. He knows what we go through. Even though he, 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 was, he never uh, took action in the temptations, he never sinned, but still he had been tempted in this life. And so he knows uh, what we go through. He, he knows how to be compassionate towards us. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Notice here what Paul writes about the God of all comfort. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Paul writes this. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. 
For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. See, God says uh, in these verses that uh, he comforts us, and then he expects that you and I be able to comfort others with the comfort that God gives us. You know, we might not realize it in the moment uh, when we're grieving, when we're suffering, but our sorrows later can have the ability to comfort others. You know, and it's easier to comfort those in situations where we have gone through the same thing. You know, maybe it's the death of a child or a loved one, a spouse. Maybe it's a, a medical diagnosis that we've gone through that we know someone else is dealing with. You know, I can show sympathy in those different instances. And of course, sympathy is just, you know, having feelings of tenderness towards those who are suffering. But really, um, you know, it's much more powerful to be not sympathetic, but empathetic, right? Uh, empathetic uh, because, you know, you're almost able to get into their head knowing what they've gone through and being able to comfort them in a way that maybe someone else cannot do. And so God, uh, through uh, Paul here in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, tells us that suffering sows the seed of compassion. You remember in Luke chapter 10, uh, verses 30 and 37, we get probably one of the most well-known parables uh, of Jesus. And of course, this is the parable of the Good Samaritan. We recall this, uh, how a Jewish man had left Jerusalem on his way to Jericho, and he's uh, attacked by some robbers. He's left for dead. And then we have a priest who uh, comes by, and he doesn't do anything. He just looks at the man and keeps walking. And then a Levite uh, takes that same path, and he sees the same thing. But then there was a Samaritan. You know, Samaritans and Jews did not get along, but it was the Samaritan who stopped and helped the man up and bandaged his wounds and took him to, uh, to the inn and, and paid for his uh, resting and for his, uh, his recovery. If suffering does not exist, then how do we show compassion? If the Jewish man never suffered the, the beating he received from the robbers, you know, we would have never been introduced to such a powerful parable that has captured Christian and non-Christian alike. Right? Everyone knows the expression, the, the good Samaritan. You know, you're driving down the road and you see somebody on the side of the road that uh, has a flat tire and they're trying to put on the tire. We think maybe I could be a good Samaritan to that individual or, or every other instance you know, that, that, that pops up into our mind. Jesus said, in, uh, again, in Luke chapter 10, verses 36 to 37, he says, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor of the man who fell into the robber's hands? And the man said, The one who showed mercy towards him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. Right? Be a neighbor. Suffering sows the seed of compassion. And then finally this morning, we want to make mention that suffering reminds us where we are going. You know, suffering keeps this world from being too attractive. The older we get, uh, we understand that, right? Our, our bodies are, are, are struggling, they're, they're aching, uh, there's pains, and we understand the older we get, uh, that, that suffering reminds us that there's something greater than this life. You know, Paul said in 2 Corinthians verse four, or chapter 4, verse 16, you know, the outer man is decaying, but the inner man that's who should be renewing day by day. Suffering should make you and I homesick. You know, this, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through, a song that we sing all the time. The Bible refers to Christians as sojourners and strangers and pilgrims and aliens upon this earth time and time again. Why? 
Because as Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven, right? We're just passing through. C.S. Lewis, a famous Christian theologian and, and author, wrote this. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Why does this world need to be roused? Well, many are forgetting their purpose for being here, their reason for being here. It's not to be comfortable. It's not to get everything that we want. But our reason in this life on the earth is to form a relationship with God. You know, many ask, what is the, the meaning of life? You know, the Bible tells us in a couple of different places. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, and for one place, tells us to fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. Do you understand that we are in the probationary period of existence right now? You know, human existence on earth was not intended, designed to be permanent. The creator intended life on earth to serve as a temporary training training ground for the development of our spirit, our soul, our faith. As Peter would tell us again, first Peter chapter one is being tested by fire. It is being forged in fire. It is getting us ready for that next life. This is the period in which we are given the opportunity to attend to our spiritual condition as it relates to what God's will for us is in this life. And so we must constantly, constantly distinguish between the temporary and the eternal in this life. We need to remind ourselves of the goal, right? The eternal reward, that crown of life. Revelation 2.10, when Jesus said, be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. You know, maybe we need to keep recalling uh, all those who have suffered uh, beforehand, who have gone on and, you know, the good company. We are in good company when we suffer. We need to take comfort in that our suffering can be used to glorify God. And then, of course, as we're reminded of, of Job, to never give up on God or our faith. You know, Paul would say uh, that, you know, he spent many a nights in the deep, uh, that he took all of these lashings and beatings and imprisonments and uh, hunger and nights of cold. But he said for these momentary light afflictions are nothing, nothing compared to what is going to be revealed on that day. One preacher said that God washes the eyes by tears until they can behold the invisible land where tears shall come no more. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Again, suffering in this life reminds us of where we are going. So, why does God allow suffering? I love this quote that one preacher said. He said, remember, where there is only sunshine, there is desert. It takes a few storms along the way. Right? Suffering helps us appreciate our health, our friends and family, our blessings. It also helps develop our character. And through suffering, we notice that we have a dependence on God. We, through suffering, we are continually learning how to pray more fervently through suffering, it brings out our best. Through suffering, it shows that uh, we can be compassionate for one another. And then again, through suffering, it reminds us that this world is not our home. And we may ask ourselves, and others may ask ourselves, where is God during my suffering? Why is he allowing this to happen to me? 
Why did this, this youth minister in Cookville, Tennessee, have to suffer the loss of a daughter? Where is God when we suffer? And the answer to that is simply, he is in the exact same place he was when his son, Jesus Christ, suffered upon the cross. Jesus was perfectly innocent, unlike us. He never committed a sin, unlike us. But he suffered excruciating, excruciating pain for our sins. God had the power to stop it, but he didn't. And why? Because he wants something better for you and I this morning to experience eternal life. We need to remember when, uh, when, during times of suffering that God is always in control. God is good and God is always good. We are simply training for the next life. God is in control. This morning, if you have not put your faith and trust in Jesus and obeyed the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ... We, we ask you this morning, what are you waiting for? Uh, we don't know uh, that time or day when the Lord will appear. Uh, we don't know if a natural disaster uh, will occur uh, like it had a, a few weeks ago. If you are not in Christ, uh, we implore you this morning uh, to, to, to uh, follow and obey the gospel of, of our Lord Jesus Christ, to become a Christian as we um, repent of our sins and confess Jesus as Lord before man and be baptized, immersed in water for the forgiveness of our sins. Or this morning, uh, if you're here with us and you are a Christian, but you're struggling, uh, you need the prayers of this congregation. Again, this is no better time to do that than right now in front of your brothers and sisters who can show that compassion uh, towards you to help you, uh, to strengthen you and encourage you. Uh, please let us know if we can help you this morning. As together we stand and sing this song of invitation.